You guys give it up for the band one more time. My friend Christian. Christian does a great job. I love having him here on stage. We're excited to go ahead into week four of our series. This first changed my life. Uh, my name is Preston Waller. I'm the student pastor here. I lead our sixth to 12th graders into uh, our next nights that happen twice a month. Um, Pastor Scott is out of town today. He is in Texas visiting Evan and his son. Uh, him and his wife, they had baby boy twins a couple of weeks ago at the beginning of the month. And so he's got the opportunity and blessing to be able to go out and see them for the very first time. I know he's excited. I know he's having a good time. And the reason I know that is because I told first service, usually when Scott's here in town, you know, we're at work all the time. And if I have a question or, you know, I need to get up with him to ask him for some advice or something, I'll call him or text him. And usually like, he's very quick to respond. He's like, man, I'll text you right back or I'll call you. And we're just talking back and forth. But ever since he left for Texas last week, I've tried to text him, call him. I've got like three to four business days for a reply. So that means he's having a good time with his kids, with his grandkids. So uh, blessing that he'll be able to be out there. Uh, we're going to continue and actually finish up our series. This verse changed my life today. And this series is all about taking verses that have really made an impact and changed how we see in our faith and our relationship with God. Uh, and Pastor Scott's done a great job the past three weeks walking through three verses that have really changed his life and changed his faith. And today I'm going to walk through one of the verses that has changed my life. Uh, you know, I've been following Jesus for about 12 years now, since I was 16. And I've read a lot of the Bible. I've studied a lot of it. I went to college and studied to be a minister. And I, I went true millennial when I was 18. And I said, man, what's the best thing I could do for people to think that I'm cool? I was like, let's just tattoo Bible verses on my arms. So uh, I have two Bible verses on my arms. Both are in the original language of Greek, which is the New Testament language that was written in. This one on my right bicep that's written in Greek is John 3.30. And John 3.30 says, he must increase and I must decrease. And that is basically a good reminder for me every day to remember that my life is about making much of God and less of myself. And then the one on my left bicep here is written in Greek again, and it's Mark 9, 24. And that says, I believe, but help my unbelief. And it's a real good reminder for me in the moments of doubt and the moments of despair that God doesn't look at me and say, figure it out, but he's willing to walk with me through those times that I struggle and I doubt. So these are two verses that have really impacted my life or else obviously I wouldn't have tattooed them on me. Um, but those verses are not the verses I want to actually look at today. Uh, there's another verse that has really impacted my walk with God and changed my life. And I wanna talk about it today with you. And what we're gonna see is that the topic of the day, what we're gonna really discuss together is this idea of change, right? Change, we all as human beings want change in our world in our lives, in our jobs, in our families, in our country. We wanna see things get better. We wanna see things in some ways progress and get to a, a place where we think is better for our lives, for our country again. And so we wanna see change, we all want it. But I wanna stop before we jump into the verses today and really just make sure we're on the same page. Because when I say change, we can think of a lot of things like how do I change my eating habits, Preston, so I can lose 15 pounds and I can't obviously help you with that. How do I change my spending habits so I can save and retire four or five years earlier than I thought? How can I change how I think or change uh, my mental health or emotional health? And I'm not qualified to be your therapist or tell you about that either. So today I want to talk 
about change in the sense of the biblical term of change. And if you've been in church for a long time, you'll hear this word that I'm about to say a lot. Maybe you've heard it wrongly used or rightly used, depending on where you went to church. But we wanna talk today about this idea of repentance. And repentance is the word biblically for change. In fact, I wanna just quickly get it out of the way, show off my three semesters of Greek that I learned in my master's seminary and show you what the Bible defines change or repentance as because it's really gonna help us truly understand what we're talking about today. So the Greek word for repentance is that word right there on the left that you can't understand, but English translated, it's metanoia. And what repentance means is to exercise our mind or to change one's mind for the better. The best way I can describe what that really looks like for you and I today is to describe what most pastors have used as an illustration. I think it's probably the best illustration to help us understand repentance. It's this, we're walking this way, we're walking down one path and God is behind us and we're walking away from God. And in order for us to go back to God, we have to change our mind, repent and take a 180 and turn around and begin to walk down another path towards God. So repentance is in a sense, changing our mind for the better or exercising our mind to repent and change. And change today is gonna be spoken and preached about in the context of spiritual change. How do we grow in our faith? How do we change in such a way that we can leave behind the things that we struggled with five years ago and now we can gain freedom from those things. So I wanna talk about that with us today. And it's so important we understand, again, change in the term of biblically speaking, repentance, not change in the common terms we understand today. The passage of scripture we're gonna look at today comes from Romans 2. I encourage you if you have a Bible to open it up or open your phone and, and look out at it along with me. Um, but as we do with this whole series, we're gonna look at the context before Romans 2 and Romans chapter one. And the reason is, it's because if I can tell you anything about how to read and understand the Bible in a better way that's gonna help you the most is learning to read every verse within its context because that is a true key to understanding God's word. We can't just say, well, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If you really wanna know what Paul means by that, read all of Philippians 4, read all of Philippians 3, and you'll begin to see what the true meaning of that text is. But even before we look at the context of those verses, I wanna give you some context to the history of the book of Romans. And I won't spend too much time on them, but what I wanna share with us before we jump in is gonna change how we see what Paul's saying in Romans because Paul is the author of Romans. If you don't know who Paul was, he's the author of half of the New Testament. He wrote literally half of the New Testament books. There are 27 in the New Testament. He's written 13 or 14, depending on how you see Hebrews, of the whole New Testament. To say he has a huge impact on our faith is an understatement. He was seen as the greatest missionary in Christian history. And he's writing the book of Romans here at the end of his third missionary journey to the church of Rome, which is why obviously it's titled Romans. And Paul was in jail when he wrote this letter to the church in Rome. And he had three missionary journeys and I won't spend too much time, but the goal that Paul wanted to see was he wanted to bring the gospel, the message of Christianity west. And by west, I don't mean like west, like American west, just west of where he's used to. So his first and second missionary journey, he's pushing the gospel west and he's continuing to push the gospel west in his third missionary journey. And now we see he's at the end of his third missionary journey in prison. And what he didn't know is what we know now that that was his last missionary journey because months later he would be executed for his preaching and his faith. I say all that to say Paul had two main reasons to write this letter. And I wanna share them with you because it's gonna make Romans a lot more clear for us to understand today. His first goal for writing this book 
is he wanted the church in Rome to be a lighthouse for the gospel. The church in Rome or the Roman city, if, if you study history, know just how amazing that city was. So much so that Rome could be equated to like a cultural hub of that area, almost like a New York or an LA in our world and time, that most things, most cultural standards come from the big cities that they kind of deem as culturally appropriate. So the same thing was happening in Rome and Paul wanted to change that. He wanted the church in Rome to infiltrate the city with the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ so that the gospel and Jesus Christ could be a beacon and a light for not only Rome, but all areas around him. So he wanted to see the church of Rome become a lighthouse for the gospel. And then secondly, he wanted to bring unity between two groups of people in the church of Rome, which is the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews and the Gentiles both were Christians, but they both had major issues with one another and could not get along. They saw a lot of things differently. And Paul wanted to unify them around the gospel message, which is why he's writing this book. And I'll end this message by telling you why that's so important for you and me today. So those are the two reasons Paul wrote Romans. Now, as we jump into Romans 1 now together, I want to tell you, as we read these next couple of verses, you may be tempted to say, these are a little harsh. These are a little, uh, maybe that's, wow, that's, that's a little on edge there, Paul. That seems a little critical. But what I want you to know is that Paul is describing in these next verses what the unbelievers or non-Christians of Rome and that culture looked like. And it's so important for us to see what those people did and what they looked like because that's going to describe how we're really going to change. Here's what Romans 1 verses 21 through 25 says. Paul writes this, For though they, the unbelievers, knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. He goes on to say, therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their heart to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. This is the key to this section. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever, amen. The group of peoples that Paul is describing here had a fatal flaw, the non-believers of the day and age. And this is what I'm gonna do today. I wanna give us two ways that we will never change in a true way. Two things that keep us from true spiritual change. And I wanna end today by telling you how we truly unlock the catalyst to changing and growing in our spiritual life. The very first way that you and I can get change wrong is when our change is motivated by a wrong view of God. And I'll let you write that down in just a second if you take notes, but going back to the verse really quickly, they did not worship God, but they worship what God could give them. They worship what God created. They worship what God had made, what God had provided. And instead of worshiping the creator who actually gave it to them, they worshiped the blessings instead of the one who blessed them. And so the unbelievers of the day were saying, I want nothing to do with God. I want nothing to do with that religion, that cult of Christianity. All I want is what I can get from him. All I want is what he can provide for me. And I think if we're not careful, you and I can fall into this trap too of what the unbelievers were doing in our walk with Jesus. That we just want God for what he can give us, his stuff, his toys. And we begin to worship those things instead of the one who gives them to us. I wanna share with you just a little bit of my story. I'm not gonna walk through my whole testimony. Many of you have heard it enough already, um, but for those of you who maybe have not heard it, here's just a little bit of a peek into who I was a teenager because it describes that verse right there. I had a wrong view of God. Uh, 
when I was a teenager and I was going into high school, I was going into freshman year, uh, I was really struggling with self-esteem. I was struggling with depression and anxiety and fear and loneliness and not depression in the sense of like, oh, I don't have any energy today, like that kind of depression, but like depression in the sense of like, my life is a living hell right now. There's a lot of things going on at home with my family that was really causing and leading to that. And I was really struggling. I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to be loved. I had a lot of insecurities. And so I said, you know what, ninth grade going into high school, Preston, this is a time to reinvent yourself, really change who you are, surround yourself with the right people, make new friends, find people who really like you for you. And I began to fall into this crowd that wasn't the best for me like a lot of teenagers do. And I've told many of you before, and just a repeat of it, you know, when I was in high school from about two and a half years, probably freshman, sophomore, and half or junior year, like every weekend, I would struggle with depression. And the way I fixed it was I'd go, I'd drink way too much Jack Daniels and I'd snort way too many Percocets off the kitchen table. And I just tried to drown out the voices in my head, the attitudes and insecurities in my heart that told me I wasn't good enough with what I can get high off of. And I will tell you, it worked until the next morning, right? Jack Daniels does wonders for about four or five hours to wake up with a hangover and a headache the next morning and those thoughts are back in your head. Those insecurities and attitudes are back in your heart and you wonder if you're ever really gonna have change and freedom from some of those things. And, and the reason I share that is because maybe some of you are saying, well, I never overdrank Preston or Pastor, or I've never you know, snorted or done any kind of drugs. I've tried to live a, a basic kind of well moral lifestyle. And I wanna say it doesn't just have to do with substance abuse. Many of us try to change with things like relationships, I mean, like any typical insecure 14-year-old boy, what I thought would fix my insecurities and my depression was finding the right girlfriend that would love me, that would tell me how awesome I am, that would help me walk through all the things I was struggling with. And she would be the person that would help me change and find freedom from these things just to find out that like every 14-year-old who's ever existed in the history of humanity, you don't know anything about relationships and you don't know what it means to find someone or date someone that's good for you. And so it just led to more insecurities, more fights, more breakups, more heartbreak teenage like depression because oh she doesn't love me anymore now she's dating someone else and we do the same thing today we walk into marriages thinking my wife is great she loves me she's a good provider she's independent she doesn't like nag me all the time and she's going to be the person who's going to finally help me get through my insecurities and she's going to be the catalyst to helping me change and, and the same way on the other side, my husband loves me. He's, he's he knows how to communicate. He knows how to speak his feelings. He's good with my kids. He's going to be the person who's going to help me get through my insecurities, my depression, my anxiety, and he's going to be the catalyst for helping me change. Just to find out when you get married that most marriages have more problems than you actually thought before you started getting married that there's, there's a give and take. And sometimes the, the, the thing is you've had a hard day at work, but you'll walk through the door and your wife's had a terrible day at work and you're called to lay aside what you're dealing with and take care of her in the moments, even though you have every right to have her help you take care of what you dealt with at work that day. It's a sacrifice and it takes a lot of work. We put so much stock and money in our job and that trying to free us from our insecurities. Maybe that our boss sees us as a good enough worker. My point is this, we may think that this is a 21st century problem, that when Paul wrote that, that they worshiped the creation over the creator, he wasn't dealing with real scenarios. I'll tell you how messed up Christians were in Paul's day and age. He wrote a letter to the Corinth church and he called him out. He said, hey, 
Uh, we have people in the congregation who are having affairs with their stepmothers. We have people in the congregation at this church who are coming to communion and they're getting drunk on the wine at communion. That's so much so that they would come to the table. It's like this beautiful, intimate moment. Like, let's worship and remember what God's done for us. And let's come and take the bread and take the cup and worship the sacrifice Jesus had for us. And then there's your Uncle Joe in the corner chugging the bottle of rosé. And you're like, what's going on? We're, talk, we're talking about actual crazy scenarios where people are worshiping what God has given them and not worshiping God for who he is. They worshiped sex and they took sex and turned it into an idol and uh, pushed it in ways it wasn't meant to be pushed. And they've done this over and over again and they worship the creation over the God. And you will never find freedom and change in your spiritual life as long as we don't worship God, but worship what he's given us. Really quickly before we move on, I wanna give you three versions of Jesus that you and I, because I get this wrong too, get wrong. Three versions of Jesus that are not right that we mess up all the time. If you were here for our Fresh Faith series, Pastor Scott kind of went through these. Uh, it comes from Jeremy Treat's book, Seek First, an amazing book. I love this book and encourage you to buy it and read it. Here's what he say, says are three wrong versions of Jesus that we've created in our lives. Number one is cosmic vending machine Jesus. Simply put, we come to Jesus, we insert our dollar bill, we push the button we want and it gives us what we paid for. And a lot of us treat Jesus this way. God, I will go to church. I will pray. I will tithe. I will serve as long as what I give you, you return to me what I want. I'll do what you ask, but in turn, you better give me what I ask for. That my prayers better be answered the way I want them to be answered. That my life will look the way I want it to look, not how you want it to look. And as long as I listen to you, I hope that you'll turn around and listen to me and give me what I want. But that's not the God of the Bible. The second one is the divine cheerleader, Jesus, whose only purpose in life is to make you feel good about yourself and encourage you to do whatever makes you feel happy, encourages you to do whatever makes you feel like you're the best version of you. And he cheers you on and says, it doesn't matter what you think or what I think or what the Bible says or what anyone says, or if it's harmful for you or harmful for your family. As long as you feel happy, I'm gonna sit here with my pom-poms and cheer you on. You know, go you. That's not the version of Jesus of the Bible either. And then there's the heavenly firefighter Jesus version, which is like anyone when you think about a firefighter, you don't need a firefighter 99% of the time, but the one time you need him, you better call him and hope that he's there. And we've treated Jesus like this, that I don't need you 99% of the time. I'm figuring life out perfectly on my own. I don't need to read your word. I don't need to pray. I don't need to uh, worship you. But in the case of something going wrong, my mom's now in the hospital with cancer. Okay, now I'm gonna call up Jesus. Hey, I need you. Come put out this fire. I know we haven't talked in three years, but I need you. I need you to come put it out. And we treat Jesus like a commodity. And so these are three ways that we get Jesus wrong. And when I say we, I wanna make sure I'm clear. I get him wrong too sometimes. I have to check myself with this as well. And so this is how the church or the unbelievers in Rome were living. They were seeing God not for who he was, but for what he could give them. And they twisted the blessings and made them something they weren't meant to be. And so this is what we do. And we wonder why we don't grow spiritually. Well, we don't have a right view of who God really is. And we worship his stuff and not him. And this leads to chapter two, which kind of takes a turn, right? So Paul's describing unbelievers here in chapter one, and then he gets to chapter two, and now he's addressing the Christian religious leaders of the church of Rome. And here's what he has to say to them, which is so, I think, impactful for us to understand today. He says, therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse, for when you judge another, you condemn yourself since you, the judge, do the same things. 
Now we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on the truth. Do you think any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same that you will escape God's judgment? That you will escape God's judgment. The second way that we get chained or repentance wrong in our spiritual lives is we have a wrong view of ourself. We have a wrong view of who we are And we have to understand what Paul is saying to them. I'm gonna go back and just kind of go through that verse with you. He's saying, you Christian, you religious person who claims to follow Jesus, you have no excuse. You judge these unbelievers for acting this way, but you act the same way. There were people in Rome, literally, it's not a hyperbole, like literally did not know who Jesus was had never heard about God of Israel, Yahweh God, had never heard about what he did for the Israelites, how faithful he was to lead them out of Egypt, through the wilderness, across the Red Sea, into the promised land. They had never grown up hearing these stories. They never grew up being taught what it meant to pray and worship God or to learn about God or to honor him. So of course they don't act like a follower of Jesus. They never knew any better. They were ignorant. Lost people act lost because they're lost. And he's saying, but that's not the case with you. You've heard the gospel. You've experienced the love of Jesus. You had a family that grew up teaching you how to pray and worship, yet you act the exact same way. You have no excuse. How can you judge those when you do the exact same things as they do? When it comes to having a wrong view of self, there are two ways that we get it wrong. And the first way is we have way too high of a view of ourselves than we should. And that's what the religious leaders were struggling with. We cannot truly experience lasting spiritual change in our life if we have a wrong view of ourselves and we think more of ourselves than we ought to. And I'm gonna just make a couple of statements here. And I know that the tendency when I make these statements about people who think too much of themselves, you would say, well, pastor, I've never said that before. Okay, think past what you've just said. Think about how you've lived. Think about how your attitude has been. Think about your mindset and the thoughts that you've thought over the course of your experience with Christianity. Maybe if we're honest, this describes us better than we'd like to admit publicly. People who have a high view of themselves say things, think things, feel things that act like this. I've been following Jesus longer than that man's been alive. What can he teach me about the Bible? They say things like, I don't understand how that person can keep struggling with that sin. When I was their age, when I went through that years ago, I was able to get through it and never struggle again because I had this, 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 and this. How can they continue to struggle? Maybe they don't take their faith more seriously. It's the attitude of, I've got it figured out. I do what God says. And because of that, I'm a better Christian than they are. As if we're treating our faith as it's a scoreboard, And if we're honest, we're kind of towards the top. We're top 10 and we would be honest and say, maybe some of the people in the room don't deserve to be on the scoreboard. And we treat it as a comparison game, as a competition that I have got it figured out. I've been in church. I haven't missed a Sunday yet in 2022. Spoiler alert, you don't get a nice gold star on your crown in heaven for perfect attendance. It doesn't exist. And we have this attitude uninvertently in our heart that says, man, I've got it figured out. I've been coming for six years. I've worshiped, I've, I've grown. And we look at other people and say, and they still haven't got it figured out yet. We think too much of ourselves. How can a heart saturated in pride ever change? It can't. And that's Paul's point in these first three verses. You think way too highly of yourself. 
And, and when we pray and ask God to help us, we'll say things like, well, God, I know I'm a sinner. Everyone's a sinner, but I don't sin like that. I don't act like that person does. I may sin, but I don't sin that much. And we'll look and pray and look like the Pharisee in Luke 18 who says this. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. These greedy people, these unrighteous people, these adulterers, or even like this lonely tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. Do you hear the overflow of religion in this prayer? The overflow of God, thank you that I'm not like other people, that I've got it figured out, and these lonely tax collectors still disobey you. So that's one side of the spectrum, right? Self-righteousness, I'm better than maybe other people are. And then there's the other side of the spectrum, which is where I found myself for five years in my walk with God. And this is where I wanna hit home today because I feel like probably more than likely a lot of us are in this sphere versus the former. Uh, I followed Jesus at 16 and about from 16 to 21, I struggled with this right here. I knew that God loved me. I know that because I believed and trusted in the gospel message that God forgave me and he brought me into his family and I was now a son of God. I knew that, I believed it, I accepted it and I preached it even at 18 years old. But what I, if I was honest with myself, here's how I saw my relationship with God. That now that I'm saved, everything in my life is on a scale and everything's 50-50 right now. 50% God loves me. He, he wants me to be in his house. He, he is for me. And then the other 50% is God's ready to kick me out of the house any moment I make a mistake. And I had this attitude and this mindset about my relationship with God that we're at 50-50, 50% each way. But the second I sin, the second I make a mistake, the scales tip out of my favor. And now God's mad at me. And now God doesn't have patience for me. And now God's getting tired of the same old mistakes I'm making day in and day out that I haven't learned from in five years. And that if, if I wanna tip the scales back in my favor, all I have to do is pray and say, God, I'm sorry, I, I'm a sinner. I love you, please forgive me. And then as soon as I do that, the scales would come back even and God would love me again because I apologized. And I said, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And I believed that and I acted like that that way and it led to a lot of fear and anxiety that any moment that I wasn't getting it right, God was done with me and he was angry at me. And maybe that's where some of us are with our spiritual walk. Maybe the reason we haven't changed is because we're living every day in fear and anxiety that God will be done with us at any moment that we don't get it right every day. I found myself in that trap, in that cycle for five years and it was not until I read this next verse that everything in my life changed and how I saw my relationship with God. Let's read it together. This is what it says. Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint and patience, not recognizing that God's, what church? Judgment is intended to lead you to repentance. But here's what's so important about that verse right there. That that's not what the verse says. That's why I encourage you to follow along. Don't just take my word Read it yourself. That is not what Romans 2, 4 says, but that's what I believed for the longest time, that God's judgment and being scared of him judging me again is what should lead me to repentance. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says this, or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's what? Kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. 
that it is the kindness of God that motivates us to change. Not fear, not anxiety, not things of this world, not a a cosmic vending machine, Jesus, that gives me what I want, not thinking I can earn it, but remembering that the gospel is our great motivator for change. That the gospel is what motivates us to follow God day in and day out. That the kindness of God says, you can't earn my love and you can't lose my love. That my love is not based on what you do, but it's based on what's already been done for you on the cross. And I had to remember and I had to learn that God's kindness was the catalyst to change. That God's kindness was what was to make me motivated to follow him closer and in better ways. And and I know why I struggled with this for so long. And maybe some of you, this is your story. And if it is, I, I pray that this will speak to you. Maybe some of you, it's not your story. The reason I always believed that God was at any moment ready to kick me out of the house and be done with me was because of my experience with my earthly father that my father worked a laborious job. So every time he came into the door at 5 p.m., he was already covered in dirt, covered in paint, sweaty, tired, exhausted. And everyone in the house had to walk on eggshells because of it. That at any any point, if he came in and you hadn't done the chores that he had asked you to do today, it was liability for him to pop off and lose it on you. That at any moment that if he was having a bad day, it could lead to you being verbally, you know, just talked down to and anger would overflow out of his heart because of how just much he was angry. That when he would try to show me and teach me something, he would show me and say, okay, Preston, uh, this is how you do this. This is what you do next. And this is how it ends. And then if I tried it and messed up the first time after he showed it to me, he would lose it and just walk away and say, I guess you just don't understand. And I took that same premise that I had an experience with my earthly father into how I saw my relationship with God. And I said, surely that's probably how God sees me too then. That if I don't get it right the first time, then I'm not worth trying again. And we must know that the gospel is what motivates us to these things. And and so I want to just recap really quick before we get ready to transition to the end. If the things of this world, whatever you want to call it, money for you, substances for you, relationships for you, I don't know. If those are the things that are motivating you to change and trying to follow Jesus better, it'll never truly change you because things of this world fail you and things of this world are finite. They have no eternal value. You can build up your 401k. You can put all your stock, money, and time into making as much money as you want. The old saying is true. It don't go with you. You can put all your stock into religion saying, I'm gonna be self-righteous. I'm gonna earn. I'm gonna be the best Christian in the room. I'm telling you, religion will never bring true change to your life because all religion does is change the rules to make yourself feel better about yourself. That's not change. Fear and anxiety won't change you because fear and anxiety don't treat the heart issue. It just treats the symptoms. That will never truly motivate you to change. But what will motivate you and I to change, to grow, to walk towards God is realizing just how kind he has been and is for us. The gospel proclaims something that's so true for us today, which is this. God, when he died for you on the cross, Jesus died for you. He not only died for your past sins, everything you messed up yesterday. He didn't just die for what you're messing up today in the five hours we've been awake. He died for all sins, past, present, and future. There's no sin you have not committed yet that you will commit tomorrow, the next day, that has not already been covered by the blood of Christ. 
And we must remember and celebrate that that's the truth of the gospel. And, and when we think about the analogy I used in the beginning about how we walk down one path and then we have to do a 180. So if God's back here and I'm walking away from God and I want to change and turn around and walk towards God, what's motivating me to change to not be fear that if I don't turn around, God's gonna be done with me or religion, I'll turn around. I'm already turned around because I've already, I'm already walking that path. I'm turning around and following after God because I look at how beautifully kind he is. And I say, Preston, how could I not want to follow and run after God who has shown me so much grace and so much kindness? And we begin to chase after Jesus every day because we know how much he has loved us and will continue to love us. Even when we try to follow him and fall on our face like losers, he will look at us and pick us up and meet us with grace and kindness again. And as I close today, as I get ready to close, I want to end in a, in a different way. Um, one of the things that's so important for us to understand, it's why I mentioned why Paul wrote Romans at the beginning of this message. Because Paul was trying to unify people that did not like each other around the gospel message. And that's what's beautiful about the church to me. There are people in this room who you, as soon as you, your mom popped you out, you were popped out on the stage of a church and you've been in church every day since the rest of your life. And there are people in here who this is my first Sunday in six years, pastor. I've been going through it. There are people in here who are struggling with addiction. There are people in here who have been walking sober for six to 10 years now. There are people in here who vote strictly Democrat every election. There are people in here who vote strictly Republican every election. There are people in here who are rich. There are people in here who are poor. There is young, there's old, there's white, there's black. There's everything in between. And we're all here because the gospel has touched every one of our lives. And we are unified around the love of Jesus Christ for us. And we must remember that because how I'm gonna end is, is so important. I always try my best to do this in my messages because I struggle with this. And I, I know that if I struggle with it, hopefully you do too, so I don't feel alone. We, we love to experience messages like this that say, God loves me. God is kind to me. God is patient with me. God has shown me grace every day. And I love and amen that pastor. But when I walk out of here, I don't really feel like extending it to some people. I got a couple of excuses lined up why that person doesn't deserve kindness from me. And how I want to end is I want to show you six ways that you and I can show the same kindness that has been given to us by God to other people with no walls, no barriers in between. Because again, I know we love to receive grace like this, but we have a very hard time wanting to extend it, especially to people who have hurt us. Here's six ways that you and I can show God's kindness. I'll walk through them pretty quickly and then we'll pray and I'll give you some announcements at the end. Uh, six ways you can show God's kindness, practically speaking, to everyone you encounter on a day-in, day-out basis. Be slow to speak, quick to listen. James 1.19 says that. And in essence, if you want to be kind to people, sometimes the best thing you can do is just zip it and just listen and hear what they have to say. Not agree with everything they have to say, but listening to everything they have to say trying to understand maybe a different point of view, even if at the end of the day you say, that's still kind of out there, dude. I don't really buy into that. At least you're slow to speak. It's kind. It shows God's kindness for us that he was patient with us. And, and, and I just want to throw this out here because it's a practical way to put number one on the ground so we can understand it on a daily basis. And if you've been here any time and heard my messages in the past, you know I kind of harp on this kind of a little bit. Um, but ask yourself this question. Does belittling, undermining, and, and name calling 
of people on social media really show God's kindness. We're so quick to speak. We love to throw out our opinions, throw out our facts, throw out what we believe on our Facebook, on our Instagram, even when we talk to other people. And I've learned that really when I look at my Facebook feed or my Instagram feed and I see people on the right calling people on the left snowflakes and I see people on the left calling people on the right racist and bigots because they don't agree with everything they say, uh, I, I notice that we love to throw rocks at each other. And we love to name call and we love to belittle and we love to undermine each other all in the name of what we believe is truth. But that doesn't show God's kindness. That shows division. And there is no division in the people of God. Number two, don't hold grudges, forgive. This is the biggest thing. If you can just take any of these six and practically do it, just do number two. There's nothing more hypocritical and nothing more anti-Christian than when we have two hands and one of them we wanna receive forgiveness and the other hand we refuse to extend forgiveness to other people because of what they've done to us. Pastor, if you knew the trauma that person brought to my childhood, you would be saying differently. No, I wouldn't. I'm not saying that they're not wrong. I'm not saying you're not the victim. I'm saying that Christians are called to forgive because you've been forgiven a much and you are called to forgive other people a much, even when it's tough. Forgiving people that are loving and kind to you is not forgiveness. That's just nice. That's just being courteous. Forgiveness comes when we really forgive the people who have done us the most harm. And we cannot, in one hand, accept the gospel of forgiveness and say, this is great, I love Jesus' forgiveness, but we refuse to extend it because of excuses of how people have treated us in the same breath. Number three, you serve the least of these. Jesus said in Matthew 25, what you've done for the least of these, you've done for me. How have you served people? How have you entered into spaces and said, you know what, Preston? In this moment, I'm putting my needs, my wants, my desires on the back burner, and I'm gonna serve this person to meet their needs, even if I don't think they deserve it. Who's the least of these to you? For every one of us, it's different. Who's the least of these that you think is the least deserving of you to serve them in a practical manner this week? What we forget about John 13 so, so much is that Jesus washed the feet of his disciples the night before he was arrested. And we love to remember, like, he washed Peter's feet. Peter's so goofy, he talks all the time, like, ha-ha, Peter. But we forget because it's not directly in the text that Jesus washed the feet of Judas 24 hours before he would turn them in and betray him. And we have to remember that if Jesus was willing to wash his enemy's feet, that you and I are not above our master's example. We are called to serve even the least of these that we think don't deserve it the most. Number four is faithful presence. Romans 12, 15 says, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Christians enter into the mess. They enter into the space that's hard. They don't just come around people when times are good and say, we're gonna celebrate together, congratulations. But they come into spaces and they're consistently faithful and present in people's lives even when it's tough. Even when you faithfully serve someone and they continue to talk bad about you or continue to hurt you, you still enter into the mess and make a consistent presence in their life. Why? Because some of the best ways you can show kindness is by weeping with someone who is hurting and rejoicing with someone who is celebrating. God has called us to faithfully practice the, the art of presence and being there for people. Number five, be intentional with speaking life. This has made a difference in my walk with God so much so that I, I, I've just seen God work through this so many times in my, my relationship with him that I'll be sitting in my office or out at dinner and I'll have this random thought or I'll have this random heart uh, uh, stirring up in, in my heart that says, hey, you should, you should text that person and just tell them you're praying for them, tell them how you're praying for them if they need anything to reach out to you. And I can't tell you how many times it was just so random, but I leaned into those moments and actually 
took the time in those random moments of my life to encourage someone with a text or in front of me or over Facebook or whatever. And God has blessed that. And you can't, I can't tell you how many times the response has been pastor, brother, friend, youth pastor, dude. That meant a lot to me. Thank you so much. You don't know what I'm going through, but this was really timely. And if we, we dismiss those feelings, dismiss those thoughts, we'll miss opportunities to bless people in a tangible way. Nothing is more needed than a word of encouragement. A word of encouragement speaks more volumes when it's random versus when it's opportune. It's easy to speak a word of encouragement when someone does something nice for you. Thanks for helping me move in, brother. You know what? I just think you're a great person. I love that you serve other people. Sometimes the best way you can encourage someone is when it's random and not because they did something for you. And then six, pray for all people, even your enemies. Jesus prayed for his enemies and nothing will humble us as a people more than when we get on our knees before a holy God at night and we say, God, I wanna pray for the person who's throwing the most stones at my life right now. They're continuing to attack me. They're continuing to undermine me. They're continuing to hurt me, but I'm gonna take this moment and hit my knees and humble myself to pray for them. These are six ways you can show kindness to people in a tangible way. I'm sure there's more. I'm sure maybe you can make an argument. One of those doesn't deserve to be up there. I don't know. I'm not a pastor or anything. But these are six ways that you can show God's kindness to people in a practical way. Because what's important is not only that we believe and receive the truth of God's word, which is God's kindness should motivate you to change and growth, but that we're willing to show that same kindness and grace to the people that we run into contact with on a daily basis. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the truth that holds. Thank you for the grace and kindness that you've extended to us, God. It's kindness because we don't deserve it. And God, we don't deserve you to be kind to us. We don't deserve for your grace. We don't deserve for your mercy, but you show it to us in your consistent God, worthy of our praise. Will we not be people who just amen and love that you love us, God, but we be people who actually show the love of God in a tangible way, that you would use us to be salt and light, to be the hands and the feet of the church, to love people the way you would intend us to love them so that your gospel could go out and be the light of our community of Elizabeth City. We pray it in your name, amen. Before I let you go, give me two minutes, two, three minutes. I wanna tell you about a couple of announcements that Carla and Ashlyn hit in on them and hosting, but I wanna, I wanna just kind of give you a little bit of details before I let you go to lunch. Uh, if you didn't, weren't here for hosting, we are having our Love Thy City event on September 17th, which is a Saturday from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. here at Forest Park. And the reason we're having it so early is because we don't want you to be out there like sweating to death at three, four in the afternoon. So um, we're having it September 17th, Saturday from 8, PM, 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. If you want to register to vote, or not register to vote, Lord, register to volunteer, uh, go to F plive.org slash love thy city. Fill out the form there. Our goal is to try to get 30 to 40 people to volunteer for the day. Um, And I just preached about one of the ways we show kindness to people is by serving the least of these. This is a very great way that you can actually do that and actually be part of our community outreach for the day. It's gonna be an amazing time. I wanna quickly tell you that three of the projects we have for the day so that you can know all about them. We're in the works of trying to get two more, but right now these are the three that we know will be the projects we have for Love Thy City. Number one is we're partnering with Habitat for Humanity of Elizabeth City, which is a great organization. They do so much great stuff. And we're gonna work with them on a repair project that they have for the community to really go out and help people. I would encourage you, if you're naturally good at building, repairing, working with your hands, we'd love for you to volunteer to help with the Habitat project. I know that it'll be a great opportunity for you to tangibly see uh, some great things that you're gonna do for people. So that's one of the projects we have. That'll be on Saturday, September 17th. Uh, The other one we have is the Wash House. I was uh, just 
let known that the second wash house location by Domino's isn't open yet, so it'll only be at the main one. Um, what we're doing is we're going in there and we're just gonna pay for people's uh, clothing. We're just gonna pay to have them have free washes and dries. Um, so what we're gonna do is we're gonna raise money. So the two ways you can get involved with this project is we can really use you to volunteer to be a part of being there to actually help pay for the people to get their clothes dried and washed. Uh, but the second way you can help is we're actually raising money so that you know it won't come out of your pocket per se, but it'll come from the church. We would love for you to consider donating to this project. Uh, you can do that by going to fplive.org slash give and give online, or you can uh, put cash or check in an envelope, put Love Thy City on it, drop it in the black boxes on your way out. What's great about this project is um, that we've talked to the owner of the wash house and he's let us know that everything that Forest Park raises between now and September 17th, he will match himself. So, which is a great opportunity for us. So if we raise $1,000, just hypothetically speaking, he will match it and we'd be able to spend $2,000 to help bless the community by giving out free uh, opportunities for them to wash and dry their clothes, which is so needed for people in our community right now. And then the third way is we're having a clothing giveaway that'll be here on campus that day. This is a great way that we can actually provide clothes to uh, needy families who really need them. I mean, we're back to school, it's time to get nice clothes. Some people don't have the money to be able to buy their kids back to school clothes or whatever, and it'll be getting close to winter, so people will be looking for winter clothes. Here's two ways you can help with this project. One, volunteer. We really need volunteers for this project as well. Number two, you can donate clothes. We're actually asking everyone to consider, please donate some clothes. Me and my wife already donated. It was a great opportunity for us to uh, kind of go through our closet and say, wow, uh, yeah, I'm not fitting into a large anytime soon. You know, I need to get rid of that shirt. I haven't worn that uh, suit since I was in the school system. Let's donate that. It's a great opportunity to go through our closet and kind of get rid of some things we don't need anymore so other people can receive something that are less fortunate. Here's the key, Lisa Meads wants me to tell you, so please make sure you remember this. Gently use clothes, please donate. We don't want something that you cut grass in that has 500 holes in it. We don't want anything with stains that we don't know what came from you donating those. So please, if you're gonna donate clothes, you can donate them here at the church every Sunday between now and September 18th. Or if you wanna come out Monday through Thursday, we'll be here at the office to receive your clothing. It's a great practical way to bless our community. Again, these are the three that we know we will have. We're working on two more projects, but we'd love for you to consider volunteering. Again, if you want to volunteer, go to fplive.org slash lovethycity and register there. Um, I love you guys. I hope that you have an amazing Sunday.